if you're going to be good, if you're going to get bigger and, and have people want to come back, you have to offer something that no one else offers, and that's original content presented in a good way. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 3. It is March 15th, 2008. This week we have another spooky edition of BOA Audio for you. As we return to the ghost realm, we're going to be giving you more ghost discussion with a bona fide A-list name in the world of ghost research. Our guest is Jeff Belanger creator of the online juggernaut ghostvillage.com. Jeff Belanger is massively popular in the world of ghost research. He is one of the top names when it comes to ghost conferences, makes innumerable media appearances, is the author of just a tremendous amount of books regarding the ghost phenomenon. And we're going to be talking about some of the gems found in his latest book, The Ghost Files, including various theories as to what ghosts are, the commercialization of haunted locations, Jewish exorcisms, Jeff's global travels investigating haunted places, dealing with the skeptics, the evolution of orbs, and all kinds of other fun ghostly stuff. We're also going to examine some big picture issues, the explosion of popularity for ghost hunting and esoterica on the internet, Jeff has a wealth of experience with regards to both of these big picture issues, and we're really going to delve into them from a number of different angles. It's a fun, loose, and at times frank discussion with a researcher who's at the very top of the wildly popular field that is ghost research, Jeff Belanger. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Jeff Belanger, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Jeff Belanger is an author, lecturer, and explorer of the unexplained. History, ghosts, UFOs, folklore, and magic. The concepts are a part of our collective consciousness, and though no one can explain exactly how it all works, few can match Jeff Belanger's ability to bring the unexplained out of the fringe and into living rooms and around our office water coolers. Jeff has been writing for publication since 1992. He's worked as a magazine editor, journalist, freelance writer, and has authored numerous books on the paranormal. His books have been published in five different languages so far. He's also the founder of GhostVillage.com, the web's largest and most popular supernatural community, according to Google.com and Alexa.com. He's lectured around the United States to audiences big and small, and he's become a recognized media personality, appearing on over 100 radio and television programs worldwide. His website is www.GhostVillage.com. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on January 24th, 2008. Jeff Belanger talking about the Ghost Files and GhostVillage.com on VOA Audio Season 3. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very cool edition of Been All of America Audio. Uh, as you may have noticed so far here in the second part of Season 3, we're sort of delving into the ghost world and the 
and the genre of ghost research. And we've got just a superstar in the world of ghost research here on the show this week, and I'm excited about that. BOA Audio, of course, is the place where we want to get the superstars because they have just a great perspective on the field. So when I sort of wanted to delve into ghosts and stuff like that, I knew I had to get this guest on the program. He's the author of a number of books, uh, Ghosts of War, Our Haunted Lives, The Nightmare Encyclopedia, Encyclopedia of Haunted Places, Communicating with the Dead, The World's Most Haunted Places, uh, and the book he wanted me to do a pictorial for, Weird Massachusetts. He wanted to do a fold-out picture of just me, and uh, really, I was offended by that, but we're over that now. No, I'm just teasing him. Um, and he's also the author of the new book, The Ghost Files, from New Page Books, Paranormal Encounters, Discussion and Research from the Vaults of GhostVillage.com. As I said, he's a superstar in the field of ghost research. That's why he's here on the program. We're going to pick his brain about all things ghostly. He is Jeff Belanger. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, Tim. Thanks for having me on. You're also the uh, founder and the man behind the extremely popular ghostvillage.com. Let's start out, Jeff, with your bio, your background, how you got interested in the paranormal in the first place, where you came from, all that good stuff, and, uh, you know, your evolution as a researcher. Yeah, well, I've, I think like a lot of people, I've been interested since I was a kid, and uh, that started uh, probably in when I lived in Newtown, Connecticut, which is where I did most of my growing up. It's, a, it's an old historic town, old New England town, and I had a lot of friends from a young age who were really matter-of-fact about their houses being haunted. Uh, so, you know, would be in school and they'd say, yeah, you know, we see this old man walking down the hall at night and he disappears into the wall. And I'd say, wow, you're kidding. So we'd kind of sleep over out of it and uh, break out the Ouija board and all kinds of other things. And I was just gripped from a young age about uh, these, these ghost encounters, these ghost stories that were popping up. And then when you start to do a little historical research and you find that, wow, you know, there, there were people who fit those descriptions living here uh, that, that might back up some of these sightings, it, it really got interesting. And then after college, I actually became a newspaper reporter. That was my, my first job, my first love, um, and where I always come back to. So I was a journalist, and around Halloween, you go looking for the haunted interest stories, and our newspaper was no different. So I was just gripped with you know going to these haunted locations, alleged haunted locations, um, but most importantly, interviewing the eyewitnesses. And to me, that's that's really something. When you interview enough people, you know, either as a radio host or a, you know a journalist or whatever, you, you start to get a feel for when people are full of it, when they're just delusional, or when they really have experienced something that shook them. I got to interview Ed and Lorraine Warren. I've known them since I was 10 years old. I grew up in the town next door to them. And uh, so I saw a lot of their lectures and certainly found them to be very interesting people. And uh, but, but more so, like when you, when you actually roll up your sleeves and go to these places, and when you talk to the eyewitnesses and you look in their eye and you can see they've really been moved by something profound. I just, I got hooked ever since. And then in 1999, I started ghostvillage.com. It was just six little humble web pages back then. And um, on the homepage, I said, tell me about your own ghost encounters. And it's just exploded from there. It's a site where we, we really welcome all sides of the issue, the religious view, the skeptical view, uh, the scientific and the psychological and everything in between. And from there, you know, I, I started writing my own books and, you know, lecturing and, and doing all kinds of other things in and around the paranormal and kind of I'm doing this full time now. Um, I, I still take my journalism background into everything that I do. Uh, I'm interested, you know, it's it's not for me to speculate onto, onto what these things may be, but I am very interested into what the implications are, you know, because I think when someone sees what they perceive to be a ghost or a spirit, it's that big question is answered for them, you know, is there life after death? Well, when you see what you think is a ghost, 
yeah, there's something. I, I don't know what. And lots of religions have their ideas on, on what happens next. But, you know, the farthest I've come so far is it's something. Pretty good, huh? Yeah. That's a, wow. <laughs> Even with the TiVo interruption, you're smooth. <laughs> um I guess sort of like a leaping off point would be uh, nowadays it seems like anybody who looks into ghosts is sort of tagged as the as a ghost hunter, sort yeah. of like the uh, equivalent of a UFO buff. Sure. Um, so, but I, I take it that you're not really a ghost hunter per se. Well, how would you describe yourself as ghost investigator? I was actually uh, took a ride with Balzano this weekend to uh, Spooky South Coast. I was on the show with them, mm-hmm. and uh, we were talking about that on the way. So I was telling him I was interviewing you, and I was like, "What would you really call me? Not much so much a ghost hunter, a researcher, obviously folklorist in a way. You know, you sure. sort of collect these stories. So how would you describe yourself as a researcher, and and what extent do you do as far as like investigations go? Tim, I've been called a lot of things over the years. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them not fit for mixed company, and uh, and I'm okay with all those labels. I, I'm okay with being called a ghost hunter because I do go looking for them on occasion. Um, I do go on investigations. I, I love to tag along with other groups. Um, I do have my own investigation team, and it is the most exclusive group of ghost hunters in existence in the world today. Our group is so, so exclusive. I mean, really, I mean, it, it's, I, I can't stress that enough. Uh, it's so exclusive, in fact. It's so exclusive, in fact. <laughs> How exclusive is it? <laughs> it's just me. <laughs> There's a lot of infighting, but we've managed to stay together all these years and, um, and, and you know, still press forward. But, no, seriously, I do go out on investigations, and I do tag along with a lot of other groups. Uh, I love doing that. I love seeing how people do things, how they approach the uh, the topic. Um, I do own an EMF meter, however. I, I don't know how much stock I put in it personally, um, but I do think that uh, there's something out there to be found. And, and what interests me, the, the whole everything in and around this phenomenon interests me. Mm-hmm. Um, everything from you know the notion of life after death, the notion of ghosts, the, the folklore aspect of it, the scientific aspect of it, and the psychological aspect, not just of the witnesses, but of the people who go looking for these things. Um, it, it, I think it's it's interesting. You know, there are people that say, no, no, we, we don't use psychics or dowsing rods or Ouija boards. We are purely scientific about this research. And they go in there, you know, trying to collect EVP and using their EMF meters. And I'm like, you're, you're practicing a belief system. You recognize this, right? No, 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 we're scientific. I'm like, but you have to, you know, you have to accept that there's some notion of ghosts before you even walk into the building. Yeah. And so the reality is what I think is happening and what's so interesting about, let's call it the ghost hunter movement, yeah. is that people are, are are trying to wrap their hands around this very big topic. And, you know, and this has been going on for thousands and thousands of years. You know, it's, it's always been this way. We're, we're trying to figure out these big questions. And I think we live in a time where, you know, the big religious institutions don't have the hold on society that they did even 50 years ago, certainly not 100 years ago and, and you know, centuries past. But nature abhors a vacuum. People need spirituality in some way, whether it's practicing yoga, drinking green tea, uh, going to church on Sunday, synagogue, you know, or ghost hunting. Uh, I think it's an expression of spirituality. So the whole thing interests me. And I guess at the end of the day, if I had to label myself, which I rarely ever do, I guess I'd have to call myself kind of like a paranormal journalist. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and, and that involves um, pretty much every every part of it. Um, 
you know, sometime investigator, sometime ghost hunter, sometime folklorist. Uh, just don't call me late for dinner, right? There you go. And then I guess to just sort of jump into uh, one of the big picture things that's in, in the ghost files, um, and that's just sort of I really enjoy the section here. Uh, it's on page 66 in the book for those that have it, where you go through like the nine different, I believe it's nine, yeah, nine categories that are what is a ghost. Right. And I like that because for someone like me who's sort of only peripherally on the edge of uh, the ghost hunting field, there was still a lot of stuff in there that I hadn't heard, uh, you know, attributed to what may be a ghost. So let's uh, let's kind of go through that. And uh, I probably have a follow-up question between one and number one or number two, because I'm a little confused by those two. And, and actually, uh, I, I've come to realize uh, ever since there should have been a tenth category as well, but we'll, we'll get to that at the nice. end. Um, but, um, yeah, not to just read from the book, but yeah. the idea is that there's many theories on these, and um, I, I've seen evidence that could fall into any number of these categories, and sometimes more than one. Everything from a ghost is an impression that might be left on a location, something we might call a residual haunting or a stone tape theory, mm-hmm. where, uh, for example, a murder took place in a house, and it left an impression, and it just plays over and over again like a movie, and for some reason, some people are able to pick up on it, um, just tune into it like a radio signal. It's not intelligent, it's not interactive, it's not there, but it was there at one point, and some people just pick up on it so and perceive it as a ghost. So that's certainly one part of it. Um, uh, another one is that it's a it's a time slip. What you're you know, the, and this gets into the realm of, of quantum physics here and string theory and, and all kinds of other notions of parallel universes. Um, or uh, quantum physics also has one theory that time is not necessarily linear. That in some cases there are uh, there are kind of like wormholes that can take you forward or backward. If that be the case, maybe someone is, for some odd reason, peering back in time, just for a brief moment, and seeing something that was there in that location, but maybe a century ago. Now, again, let me, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Again, theories. I'm not telling you this is how it is. These are just the theories, but yes, go ahead. Um, Now, what's the difference there between the time slip and and the residual Haunting. Let me find, make sure I said that right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, well, the residual haunting would actually be imprinted right on the location, in the walls, on the land, things like that, where where people are actually picking up on it. You're right. Yeah. I mean, I, I could see how that could be confusing. And the other one is you're seeing an entire scene. You're seeing uh, all. The, an example would be someone uh, sent me an email once. He was looking for a a tennis court in Revere, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And this was a really interesting story. And again, I I don't hook anyone up to a lie detector. You can take this or leave it. But he explained how he and his buddy were looking to play tennis. He knew that there was a court around here somewhere, and he saw a cop on the street corner. He said, but the cop looked out of date. And he pulls up, and he says, you know, hey, you know where the tennis court is? And he said the officer looked at him kind of weird but said, yeah, you know, two blocks down and then on the right. And he said, okay, thanks. And he gets there, and he said it was the strangest thing. There were a bunch of people playing tennis. Everybody was dressed in old tennis whites. They step out of the car, and all of a sudden the scene's gone, and it's just this abandoned lot. Oh, weird. And, and, you know, to me that's interesting. He saw the whole scene as if it was an entirety as opposed to, uh, you know, a residual where you might just see the people. Yeah. So he saw the entire scene. So uh, interesting. Interesting. Uh, another theory, the discarnate soul. I think that's kind of our traditional understanding of, of what a ghost is. You know, grandma died. She doesn't want to leave. She's still hanging around. She's intelligent. She's interactive. She's moving objects on you, these kinds of things. Um, poltergeist, which in German, of course, means noisy ghost. Um, one of the predominant theories there is that this actually has more to do with the living than the dead, and it's really um, powers of the mind that you perceive as a ghost, and you're not even aware of it. And uh, this 
a kid with raging hormones and, and maybe you know dealing with some anger or something at that moment and doesn't even realize that you know the moving object or the breaking glass came from the child or you know also from adults too so um you know that's that's all and but people perceive that as a ghost yeah uh hallucination some people are on drugs some people are uh, have mental disorders that cause them to see things and then say i saw a ghost i can't be crazy i must be normal i saw a ghost Sometimes, sometimes, you know, we have to say this is hallucination. Uh, imagination. Imagination and how I differentiate hallucination and imagination. Imagination is more like, uh, and I've seen this many a time, someone walks by a window and the uh, the curtain flutters a little bit. And someone else sees it and says, hey, that's a ghost. And you say, well, wait a minute. You know, is it possible that the wind from someone walking by may have just done that and you didn't see the person? No, no, no. You know, and yeah. it, it gets into wishful thinking. Yeah, I'm going to jump in and give you props here for even including hallucination and imagination in the list because, you know, maybe some other people who have a lot staked in the ghost thing, and you have a lot staked in the ghost thing, sure. that's your field, um, would want to gloss over that or, or would be like, yes, but we don't, let's not talk about that or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I'll give you props and kudos just for even including them and in, in talking about that because it's important to be like, you know, let's keep a level head here. This absolutely, yes. Yeah. You know that you imagined that or you hallucinated that. Not everything that bumps in the night is a ghost. It, yeah. it can't be. Sometimes, you know, hey, you're, you're, it's a cold night. Your pipes are expanding in the wall. You know, these th there is very often a normal explanation. Mm -hmm. But still, and again, this is getting into the psychological aspect of it. This is what fascinates me about the whole thing. Is some people seeing a fluttering curtain is enough for them. That's that's almost like seeing an orb in a photograph is enough. That tells them that there's life after death and it's going to be okay. It's not enough for me personally, but it's enough for some, and I find it really interesting. Um, uh, another theory, it's a thought projection, meaning uh, similar to a poltergeist, but actually it's a mind projection into the, into the environment where even other witnesses may actually perceive it. Tough to tell, um, you know, but this is some of the things that are being discussed out there. Yeah. Uh, colliding dimensions. Now, this gets into very much into string theory and quantum physics, the notion that you walk down an alleyway, you get to the end, you could go left or you could go right. You decide to go left. Well, there's a whole other parallel universe that existed had you gone right. Now, there's billions of people on this earth all making billions of decisions, so you've got just, you know, inf almost an infinite number of universes that are all around us. Uh, and the notion is that it's, it's almost like a, a giant donut where each universe is a thin slice that just keeps going around. And every now and then there's a ripple that causes two to touch each other and where they intersect, you know, one universe sees one side, the other universe sees the other. And, you know, you perceive it as a ghost because you just saw something that was there and then it wasn't there. You know, again, mm -hmm. this is this is in the realm of quantum physics. Uh, number nine, angelic or demonic. This is definitely getting into belief systems now, where you're, 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 you perceive anything that's going bump in the night as sent from God or sent from the devil. Uh, that requires a belief system. That requires, you know, generally a Judeo-Christian, Muslim, you know, belief system. And you know, who's to say or what's right or what's wrong? But it's per, it's the perception of the witness that counts. And number ten, the one that I absolutely left out and really uh, I shouldn't have, is fraud. In some cases, ah. <laughs> they are absolutely fraud. And one of the things, you know, because ghosts are so popular right now, this actually makes my job more difficult. I get calls from restaurants and bed and breakfast that say, we have a ghost, you know, you should put us in your next book. 
And then I have to sit there and say, well, am I part of someone's marketing plan or do they really have an interesting you know, story to tell? Uh, or is it is there something there, but it's being blown way out of proportion for the purposes of, of marketing? And that's one of the things that, you know, all of us have to be careful of, that we're not just propagating someone's legend for the sake of their bottom line. Yeah, I noticed you put that in the book, and actually that's one of the next things in the notes because uh, I'd heard that sort of thing a lot, and I was wondering if that was really uh, how prevalent that really is, ghost fakery by businesses hoping to – Hoping to spur on profits, or or like apparently from what you're saying, it is pretty prevalent. Because I was I was kind of like, oh, that, I've heard it a lot, but I, I don't know how true it is. So it is pretty true that they do that sort of thing. Here's now now fakery, you know, like for example, you know, putting in some laser light show or something. I, I haven't encountered that so much. <laughs> and although I will say, like on the Queen Mary in Long Beach, California, um, now they they tell you it's fake, but they have sound effects and things that as you walk through the ship, they will. You know, project certain phenomena, so you actually experience it guaranteed. <laughs> but it's it's on a tape reel, and they, you know, and they they do disclose that to and to their uh, to their credit. But one of the things that you run into is, you know, taking a legend of a of a you know a restaurant has you know someone years ago said, yeah, I think I saw someone walk by and disappear, and they just run with it and tell it again and again, and and uh, you know they bring in ghost hunting teams, some who are so zealous will believe. Whatever they hear, and you know, they get an EMF meter spike and say, "Yeah, it's haunted," and the legend propagates. And here's here's the thing I've discovered: if you have a restaurant or a bar or something like that, and you've got a haunted legend attached to it, it just does wonders for your business. People who don't believe in ghosts or could care less will either go or not go. It makes no difference to them. People who do believe will go far out of their way to go to some of these places to say, like, yeah, I had dinner at a haunted restaurant last night. And so uh, understanding that and, you know, I mean, it's just it's a marketing basic, you know, an advertising basic. The legends really serve these people. And so it means that if I'm going into a location like that, that really may be haunted, may have something going on, I need to talk to former owners, former employees, people that could care less if the business succeeds or fails and see how far back do these legends go. Yeah. So you got to, like, separate the wheat from the chaff. That must be hard dealing with uh, places like that. It, it can be. And sometimes, you know, but once you've covered a lot of haunted locations like I have, mm-hmm. you get more interested in the obscure ones to begin with. You know, some of these places, excuse the pun, have been done to death. Yeah. And, you know, so I'm now more interested in the ones that are a little more off the beaten path. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and some, and I, but I've also run into, um, I've run into, several times where you've got hotels and bed and breakfast. Now, there a haunted reputation could, in fact, hurt you. Some people would be afraid to stay overnight in a place that they heard was haunted. And I have run into people that say, you know, one guy actually told me, he said, look, there are absolutely ghosts here, but I will never talk about it on the record because, you know, I think it will hurt my business, and I don't want to be known for that. I want to be known for a really classy bed and breakfast. So, you know, I can't stop you from what you're writing, but I'm not going to cooperate. And I said, wow, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. Now I really want in. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, uh, but I have run into that too. Um, and now you kind of touched on something else here that, that I hadn't really thought of, but uh, I'm sure you must have gone through it or experienced this sort of thing too. And that's just sort of like um, a been there, done that feeling. Like you said, I kind of like the offbeaten stuff. Um, you know, I get tons of UFO stories, and after a while, I'm just sort of like jaded to the whole thing. But <laughs> yeah. I just don't want to hear any more UFO stories. Do you? How do you? Uh, I guess you could say, like, how do you deal with that that uh, that atrophy, if you will, of of uh, you know that um, 
desensitization to to ghost stories and stuff like that. Yeah, you're right. That's that's the hardest part, and it's so horrible. Like you're at a party or something, and someone goes, "Oh yeah, you're the ghost guy." Hey, listen, oh, yeah, there's this cold spot in my house, and I go, "Okay, cold spot, footsteps, noises, I got it." You know, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're just, and, and uh, but then you realize that these these experiences mean an awful lot to the people who go through it. Yeah. And so I, you know, I usually just turn that into a question. I'm like, "Well, what do you think it means? What do you think is going on there? Why why is it happening to you at your house?" Um, and some people really haven't given that much thought. Uh, others have pretty interesting answers, and that's, to me, more interesting than a cold spot or a knock on the wall. You know, well, you know, my uncle died last month, and that's when about the time it started happening. And, you know, I really miss him, and I, I almost feel like I'm holding on to him. I, it almost turns into, like, psychological counseling, you know? Yeah. And, and and to me, that, that gets a little more interesting. The human experience is just really fascinating to me. Uh, I, you know, you mentioned UFOs, too. It, it, so much of this stuff overlaps, which is really funny to me. You know, today orbs, uh, orbs and pictures are, are ghosts. You know, that's what that's what so many websites put up and, and propagate and things like that. Orbs actually started in the 1980s. They belonged to the UFO people first. Yeah. <laughs> the UFO folks were saying, look, it's alien energy or aliens or, or whatever uh, that appear in photographs. And then somewhere in the mid to late 90s, the ghost people took them and haven't given them back since. <laughs> and I, I don't know if there'll ever be a fight about this, but um, and then I have a, a friend of mine who wrote a book called Waiting for Mary, which is about Marian apparitions. You know the Virgin Mary, mm-hmm. and he's been shown. We were talking about photographs. He's like, oh God, I've been so, shown so many pictures of these these orbs that they call angels. Or, 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 you know, Jesus light. And I'm like, oh, my God, they have them too? <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> I thought they were ours. And so, you know, everybody is basically trying to fit anything unusual into whatever their own worldview, be it a belief system or just the way they were raised and, and the way they view the world. So, you know, to the UFO guy, that orb is, you know, E.T. phoning home. And to the ghost guy, it's on. Tilda, you know, who's just stuck on the other side, and to, you know, uh, others, it's dust and moisture floating in the air. Perception is everything when it comes to this stuff. And and you're right, you, you can get jaded. You, you start to go into some of these investigations, and I, I think I had one moment where I really needed to regroup after it. I was at a ghost conference out west, and I realized, you know, people were talking about all kinds of different things, and I went, oh, my God, collectively in this room, we believe in everything. <laughs> there's, there's nothing in this room that's not believed in. Bigfoot, UFOs, alien abductions, ghosts, vampires, monsters. It's all in this room somewhere. And I just kind of, you know, shook my head for a minute. And I said, wow, you know, it, I mean, of course, different strokes for different folks. And and I understand all that. But at the same time, I, I kind of had to regroup and say, all right, I, I have to remind myself what, what is real and what is not real after, you know, after a few months of getting in too deep. Yeah. And I get interested all over again. You know, a case comes in or you hear about a, some kind of phenomenon that just defies everything you've heard before and you just get excited again. And I think that's what helps keep it fresh is there is always something new turning up. Absolutely. Um, and one of the one of the things that was new for me that I got out of the book was uh, a lot of discussion in here on the Jewish, I guess you could say demonology, uh, Jewish demonology and Jewish exorcisms and stuff like that, which I had never really heard of. Obviously, the... The Catholic side, the Christian side of exorcism gets tons of press, tons of uh, mm-hmm. tons of coverage in various esoteric areas. But I hadn't really heard much about the Jewish side of it till I read the Ghost Files. Yeah, so talk talk a little bit about that aspect of of uh, you know of the ghost world. Well, the, uh, Jews don't necessarily believe in demons per se, uh, but they have a phenomenon called dibik. And what's interesting about dibik is that 
uh, it, it's, it's a possession, to be sure. It's a spirit possession, but it, it can be for bad, uh, which is what most people think of possession, but it can also be for good. And uh, the example, and, and my, my source on this was Rabbi uh, Gershon Winkler, who wrote the book Dybbuk, and is just an amazing, amazing resource for all things uh, Jewish folklore and uh, and belief and, and things like that. Just a, a great guy. And uh, one of the things he talked about is uh, a, a Dybbuk, like, for example, you're, you're trying to quit smoking, and you're, you're really working at it. A, a dibbic, a spirit that quits smoking in life, may attach itself to you, get you through the hump, and then leave you. So that would be a good dibbic. That would be a, a good uh, possession experience. But then there's also the bad dibbic, and that is the you know you're inclined to rob a bank or you're inclined to you know cheat on your spouse or something like that. The dibbic that did that in life will will be drawn to you because of like energies. And, uh, and and attach itself to you and kind of almost like the devil made me do it kind of thing, mm-hmm. help you do this. And uh, if it becomes a problem, if it really feels like someone's got split personalities, they perform an exorcism. And the exorcism involves blowing the shofar, and, uh, which is like a ram's horn. And what's really interesting about the Jewish exorcism, contrasted with the, the Catholic exorcism, is that they believe there are two spirits in trouble. You know, in, in Catholic exorcism, the one that most people think about, uh, you know, you drive Driving out the demon, you know, get back to hell, you you evil demon, get out, get out, <laughs> yeah. you know, you're banished and all that other stuff. In Jewish exorcism, they view it as two spirits need help, the living person and the, the spirit that is attached to the living person. So first they blow the shofar to break the connection, and then they, they go through ritual to basically heal the living person and try to heal the spirit person uh, and send them on their way. So I thought that was a pretty neat, uh, neat way to look at it. Tons of belief systems have you know, have a way to deal with, you know, with, with unwanted spirits. For example, in the Caribbean, uh, there's, there's a great voodoo ritual that I think is just, is amazing. Uh, if you have a small house, what they will do is there'll be two priests that take two knives, a knife in, a knife in each hand. Huh. And uh, they'll close all the windows and doors except the front door. They'll leave that wide open. And one of the the priests will swing two knives wildly right in front of the door on the outside of it, facing inward. Mm-hmm. The other will run through the house, jabbing the knife in all the corners and everything else, funneling the spirits out through the front door where they get shredded by the other priest. Wow. And you know what? Here's the reality. Exorcisms work. They do. Now, do they work because the person says, my God, this guy just did this amazing ritual. He's sweating, you know, building up a sweat and doing this other thing. It's very intricate, and the spirits must be gone. And they either uh, tune out to them or, you know, or they were never there to begin with, and this it's kind of like a psychosomatic cure. I don't know. I really don't know. But it seems to me the more involved, the more intricate the ceremony, the more likely it is to work. Yeah. Yeah, there's a great story in there about the uh, when they just invented alarm clocks or something, and he, he right. sent the alarm clock home to the person, and it went off, and then they kind of bought into the exorcism. So it's like that kind of goes to the psychosomatic part of it. Right. That's right. Yeah, he talked about one of the early um, one of the early rabbis doing an exorcism that way, where he just set the alarm off, and they didn't know what it was, and it rang, and <sighs> yeah. you're, you're cured. <laughs> um, but yeah, who, and, and who's to say? Because you know, you're now when you when you get into the vault with possession and demons and all that other stuff. You're very much in the realm of belief, mm-hmm. and belief is so relative. Everybody's belief is different. You could take a, a room full of, you know, Southern Reformed Bible Baptists, and not everyone in that room will completely agree 100% on everything, every part of their belief system. Each individual will have a few 
things here and there that are different. Um, and, and that's because we're all different. We're all raised different. We're exposed to different things. We, you know, we have different levels of education, different friends. All these things play into who we are and how we perceive the world. And so when you're getting into the realm of belief, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a realm you have to tread carefully. And one of the things that I always think is so weird, you know, a lot of these ghost hunting groups are out there saying, oh, we'll perform a clearing or whatever. And I'm like, a clearing? What are you talking about? And one of the things they'll do too is they're, you know, the, I know very popular, they'll burn sage and they'll, you know, rub sage all around the room and they'll sprinkle sea salts around the, the floor transom. And I'm sitting there going, what on earth are you doing? <laughs> yeah. are, you, are, are you dealing with a family of witches? If so, Okay, that makes sense. That's within their belief system. Are you dealing with a family of Catholics? If so, you just sent a plumber to go in and frame a house. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Each belief system has a way to deal with these things. And if you don't take into the account the belief system of the people you're trying to help, then you're just doing weird stuff. (laughs) You know? (laughs) You're just kind of like, you know. um, And then I've also heard people say, like, well, you've got to take into account the belief system of the spirit entities you're dealing with. Okay, I can can buy into that too, but did you ask? (laughs) Hey, are you Muslim, Jewish, you know, Orthodox? What's what's the deal here? We got to know what uh, what what to pull out of our bag of tricks. <laughs> uh, sort of like a rhetorical question, or I guess you could say that you raise in the book when you're talking about uh, in the chapter where the ghosts is that you, you'd think that the ghosts would be in popular places like the the 50 yard line of the Super Bowl or the World Series or something like that. Darn right. And and the uh, the natural extension, I guess, into that question would be: Have you ever? gotten any accounts or heard of anything like that where, you know, someone who's sensitive to that sort of thing is at a major event and they're like, dude, you wouldn't believe it. There was ghosts everywhere. Well, you know, I did very recently. It was, um, it was a Yankee game. And, um, this, this guy I know who's way into this stuff, um, he TVO'd the game, he, so he had, he had the, the game recorded because he, he didn't get to see it live. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was this past season, as a matter of fact. And he said, "Oh my God!" They showed the picture. Now, keep in mind, these are these are network sporting event video cameras. These aren't cheap little, you know, bought it at the Walmart, you know, cameras. These are really top of the line stuff. And you see this orb come in and float around the picture and then disappear and in, in, off the screen. Huh. And I'm like, "Get out of here!" So he he burned me a copy and, and sent it over. And I'm like, "I'll be damned," <laughs> you know. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I and he 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 thought it, and it was old timers' day actually at Yankee Stadium. So they brought back a lot of the retired players, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Oh, that's absolutely the spirit of one of the you know one of the former players that that came to influence the game." And I was like, "Huh, that's really. I mean, that's that was his particular take on it. You know, you can take it or leave it." But I, I so I mean, yeah, you know, I, I mean, talk to any sports player. They're, they're some of the most superstitious people on earth. You know, you don't step on the the third or first base line when you walk off the field in baseball. And you know, was a Roger Clemens has to eat you know fried chicken or eat chicken every day that he's pitching. You know, or whatever. They, uh, and, and lots of them talk about um, you know, there's a spirit to each. Each venue, each ballpark, um, that they believe there's some influence there. You know, whether it be Babe Ruth and his curse, which is thankfully broken, obviously, or uh, or something else. Yeah. You know, uh, Dan Gordon. I don't know if you know him, but he yep. he, he wrote the book Haunted Baseball. A mm-hmm. uh, great book, full of these kinds of accounts where where people believe that the the spirits of other players or, or fans or whatever are still lingering around these ballparks. Why not? 
Yeah, we've sort of, uh, we haven't really gotten into any of, uh, like, your sort of adventures, if you will, but, uh, you know, let's, let's get to the Ooga Booga stuff. What's the freak, what's the freakiest thing you've, uh, you've encountered, uh, during one of your investigations? I, I think the freakiest would easily be, um, I was in the catacombs of Paris, France, and that it's, it's really an amazing place to be if, if you ever get the opportunity. The catacombs, uh, the, the ground beneath Paris had been hollowed out to quarry the limestone to build the city, and they were running into two problems back in the 1700s. They were hollowing out the ground underneath, and they were building buildings that were bigger, taller, heavier, closer together. Mm -hmm. So you've got it heavy on top and hollow underneath, kind of a recipe for disaster. The other problem they had was that they were their cemeteries, which were once on the outskirts of town, well, the town had sprawled out many miles now, and uh, the cemeteries had been enclosed with, with housing and things like that. So there was no more room to grow. And in that belief system, it was very important to families that their kin be buried with the cemetery attached to their church, and priests were taking bribes to put bodies that were just, you know, overflowing of humanity. They weren't being buried anymore, just corpses being tossed into a pile. And so buildings are collapsing in the hollowed out ground, uh, just carnage and dead bodies are spilling into the streets. And so they decided to solve two problems, close off these tunnels and move all the bodies down below. So they moved six million human skeletons down there. Wow. And uh, the first time I went down there, I was actually completely alone. Um, you go about 30 meters below the city, and you're going through these tunnels. I'm six foot two. There's plenty of spots where I had to duck to keep walking, and then there's other spots that were maybe 20 feet high, you know, as, as far as the ceiling goes. And it was about fingertip to fingertip if I stretched my arms out in both directions. So kind of cramped. And you're walking through, and eventually you come through this archway, and on the other side, there's you're greeted by all the bones, and they're stacked in this very macabre, very intricate pattern, you know, of leg bones and arm bones forming like a retaining wall, rows of skulls, skulls in the shape of valentine hearts, skulls in the shape of, you know, crosses and arcs and every other kind of pattern all around you, right at your fingertips, all human bones that were moved down there, and it really takes your breath away. And, you know, it's very quiet. It's very low light. There's, you don't hear anything. You're so far down. And uh, the first time I was going, I was I was walking through one of the tunnels, and I saw a shadow about the size of a man move from the right side to the left and then back again. And I was like, you know what? I don't have an explanation for that. I mean, the tunnel's as wide as, like I said, fingertip to fingertip. And no one else was down there, and there was no shaft or anything from the right or left. And the lighting was at my shoulder facing down, so it's not like a little, not like it was at the floor facing up and a little mouse could cast a, a very large shadow. And so I went, my God, I really, I really don't know what that was. And uh, I, I kept walking, I got through to the end, and I got back up to the surface. And I, I've never forgotten the experience. Tell, just uh, elaborate on the story that you told uh, the mass monster mash from the French catacombs, actually, uh, where... <laughs> they they apparently have a table at the end of the oh house. right yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah I, when I was down there I had my my bag with me that had like cameras and recording equipment and notebooks and stuff in it and as I was walking out the there was a security guard that said you know let me see your bag please and I was just like you know usually they check you going into a place not coming out and so I open it and I'm like okay whatever and then I went oh my god you're looking for bones. And he turned around and he pointed to a table that was right behind him. And there was like four or five bones on there. And he said, yeah, that's this morning. I was like, oh, my God. That's, I mean, you know, disturbing a place of the dead is kind of a, a universal taboo. And uh, apparently it's a daily problem there in the, in the catacombs. 
Yeah, I could see how it would be tempted to snatch a skull or something like that if you were they were everywhere. I mean, you know, but they, they are. And, I mean, seriously, they are. They're right at your fingertips. Uh, it, it's it's really, uh, and and I guess it takes all types, but certainly uh, interesting. Yeah, I did. I did have another experience actually, pretty recently, um, at the Lizzie Borden house. We were there just a few weeks ago, actually, with the Spooky South Coast guys who I mentioned earlier. And it was there was four of us in the house. That's it um, for for the evening. They were actually closed for renovations, and we had special permission to be in there. And so we were at one point. All four of us were down in the basement, and it was about eleven o'clock at night. And we were we were kind of looking around down there, and at one point we heard footsteps and what sounded like the voice of kids that might have been like seven or eight years old. And all of us just froze because we were like, oh, my God, someone just broke into this house on our watch. And we ran up the stairs because that was our first thought. Absolutely. Someone just came in off the street who doesn't belong in here. You know, we got to get them out right away. Maybe we have to call the police. We don't know, you know. And we get up to the kitchen, and there's absolutely nothing. You know, it's 11 o'clock at night. We look all around. Everything's secure and everything else. And that was certainly – that was pretty interesting. And that was just a couple of weeks ago. Now, have you done much investigation into the Lizzie Borden house? Because I know it's pretty local here, and I know a lot of the Massachusetts people do enjoy, uh, you know, jumping on that case. Yeah, it, it's it's certainly interesting. I've – um. Uh, you know, I've got a section on it in my my weird Massachusetts book coming up, and um, it, it's you know you know the stories do seem to come in. Uh, Matt Moniz from the Spooky South Coast group, mm-hmm. um, one of the one of his observations that I thought was pretty interesting is that people don't generally see apparitions there. They're not seeing anything, but they are hearing tons and tons of stuff. Objects are being moved. Uh, in one case, Matt described he was in the the front parlor room there, and he and like five or six others who were on a tour watched a picture lift up off a shelf, flip around, and get tossed halfway across the room as he looked on. Um, Matt's a pretty science-minded kind of guy. You know, he's he's not one to go making up stories. And I believe him. I, I, I don't doubt what he saw at all. So, you know, things like that are coming in all the time. But people aren't saying, well, I saw Lizzie or I saw Mr. Borden or whatever. Um but they are hearing and seeing all kinds of other things. Weird. Now, like you said, you were over in France, and, of course, England has a rich ghost history. How much mm-hmm. international research have you done as far as going to places uh, in, in other countries and stuff like that? Yeah, mainly Europe. Uh, I would love to get to some of the other parts of the world, but as I'm sure you know, it's really expensive. Um, but, uh, but yeah, England's great, too. I, I got to go into the, uh, the Tower of London after hours after they were closed, and that was absolutely an honor. Uh, I was a guest of one of the yeoman warder, the, the beef eaters who, who live and work there. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's, that place goes back, gosh, it's about a thousand years old, but there's walls there that date back to Roman times. And you go in there and there's so much British history there, but there's so many ghost stories. Now these yeoman warders are military officers. You know, these are, these are folks that are, you know, high ranking military officers that applied for this position. They've been vetted up and down, you know, the, the Queen's private security guard, albeit kind of a ceremonial position. They're historians and they live and work in the Tower of London. And, I, you know, everyone I talked to said, oh yeah, this is, this happened to me or this is what I saw. And the stories just continue out of that place. And I, it's, it's like the heart of London. You know, it really is. It's, it's the heart of the empire. I know it's not Buckingham Palace, but it's where the crown jewels are. Uh, it, it was, it's just this amazing place. And you're kind of like stepping back into history, which also makes me wonder, you know, some of these places that are so well preserved, does that play a role? You know, that, that you're, um, you know, it looks the part, 
And so does that just get you into a mindset, opening yourself up to what it must have been like to, yeah. to stand in some of these places? Uh, it, it may very well be a factor. What do you know about the Whaley House in San Diego? Because my brother actually, he lives about a quarter mile from there. And every time I go to visit, I want to check it out, but I haven't had a chance to yet. So I figured I'd ask you. You might know something about it. I know that there's a really great Mexican restaurant right across the street, <laughs> killer margaritas and really good salsa. <laughs> that's true. Um, I, yeah, like no. oh, I like Oh Hungry's. That's actually <laughs> that's new there, too. I enjoy that place quite a bit. Yeah, the uh, Whaley House is in Old Town, San Diego. Mm-hmm. And um, the uh, sorry to all you San Diego fans who just lost to the New England Patriots. There you go, yeah. That's a darn shame. But anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, the Whaley House is a, is a pretty interesting location in that it was uh, allegedly haunted from the first week it was built back in the 1800s because that was the ground where they did public executions. And Yankee Jim Robinson, who uh, was hung for really what amounted to a misdemeanor, he borrowed, you know, borrowed in quotes, a boat. There was a a boat that people used to to go out into the harbor to get to their other boats, and uh, he kind of borrowed it and wasn't supposed to. And they they sentenced him to death for it to kind of make an example of him. Well, he didn't even believe it. He's like, come on, you know, not for even stealing a boat wouldn't be worth that. Yeah. And even when they were stringing him up on the gallows, he thought this is just for show. But boy, are they really taking it far? Well, they they took it even farther. They dropped him, and uh, because he was so tall, the the hangman's noose was a bit too long, and he actually suffocated. He didn't die. And Whaley was one of the witnesses. Well, a few years later, the the location, you know, is the land is for sale, and he buys it and builds his house and store there. And within the first week, he wrote in his diaries that he heard boot stomps uh, up and down the stairs and upstairs that he said, I bet that's the ghost of Yankee Jim. So pretty interesting. You know, the the house is a week old and uh, already he believes it's haunted. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one of those locations that certainly, you know, I mean, they sell T-shirts that say the world's most haunted place or, you know. um, So, again, you've got to take some of it with a grain of salt. But at the same time, if you talk to the docents, the tour guides who work there and get to be in there after hours, um, they've got their stories. They've got their stories of, of you know, seeing objects move, of, of hearing things, and, and people even, you know, seeing apparitions in there. So the accounts continue to pour in. And uh, I was in there. I was actually in there when they were closed. I got to go in after hours as well. And um, it, it's it, it's a it's a cool old building. You know, it's it's part of Old Town San Diego, and there's there's not much of that left. So again, you know, you're stepping back into this other time and other place when you go in there. Yeah, yeah. Old Town's really cool. Like I said, it's only like a half it's only like a quarter mile from my brother's place. We've actually spent a lot of time there when I'm out in San Diego, so Yeah, no, it is it is a great a, area. A good investigation of that place. I'd like to spend the night there or something like that. It'd be neat. Now, uh kinda like sort of how we were talking about getting jaded to to uh to ghost stories and stuff like that. Another problem I'm sure you have run into a lot because you're kinda like the ghost guy, is dealing with the skeptics and you know, they range from of course the uh you know, the open minded skeptics to the zealots. Mm-hmm. to, you know, just the rude people that are like, you believe in that shit? I get yeah. that all the time. That's like the worst response from people. I'm always, that's, that usually I'm just like, no. <laughs> then I'm like, turn around and leave. So I don't have to deal with arguing with them. But how do you deal with, uh, you know, how do you deal with the skeptics and the people who just kind of want to bust your chops about it? Well, I, I find one way to disarm them. And, and I, I think there are, there are lots of great skeptical groups out there. Um, you know, shoot, James Randi, I've interviewed him a number of occasions, you know, and, and mm-hmm. uh, we've, we've gone back and forth. In fact, one of the things that, um, you know, I'll, I'll, 
I'll leak my secret to you here if you promise not to tell anyone. Um, I, uh, every Halloween, October, various newspapers will call me for interviews to talk about just ghosts in general. Yeah. And I'm happy to do it. Um, and then at the end, they're like, you know, God, I really need to talk to someone on the other side. And I say, here's James Randy. Here's his phone number. Give him a call. He'll give you the other side. I said, but here's the last word for you. James Randy is going to tell you that he knows exactly what happens after we die. I'm going to tell you, I don't know, but I think there's a lot of interesting evidence in and around the ghost experience that suggests something indeed is out there. So go talk to the open-minded skeptic James Randy. <laughs> and they always end with that saying, you know, because Randy will say, nothing happens after we die. We're dead. Well, how do you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, I don't know. I freely admit I don't know. And when I get into a good debate with a skeptic group or person, I always say, like, hey, you absolutely may be right. I, I accept that, there, that ghosts may be imagination, hallucination, thought projection, whatever. I accept that. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it's, the experience is happening to too many people in too many places too often for me to absolutely summarily dismiss it. Um, so, uh, so I keep looking. And I find if you say, like, hey, you may be right, and, and, and why do you believe that? Uh, that? What's interesting to me is when you start talking to someone saying, there's no ghosts, and I say, well, are, do you, are you religious? Do you go to church or anything? Well, yeah, I do. And then I go, oh, my God, how do you, how do you decide what, what to believe in and what not to believe in? Yeah. I mean, if you say, I'm absolutely an atheist, then okay, I accept, you know, that's your belief system. You're an atheist, then that means there are no ghosts, sure. But when you're like a Christian and you go to church each week, the Bible's full of references to ghosts. Jesus himself makes a reference to ghosts when he comes back from the dead. And uh, all of his apostles are petrified because they know he died. And he says, you look as if you've seen a ghost. Look at me. I'm not a ghost. I'm flesh and blood. He doesn't say, there's no such thing as ghosts, you silly ninnies. Yeah. You know, he says, I'm not one. So if you're religiously inclined and choose not to believe, I mean, that's certainly your personal prerogative, but I think there's holes in your own belief system. You know, if you don't believe me, believe your own religious texts. Um, so, I, you know, it, it, the reality is everybody's trying to fit the world into their, their own understanding of the universe. And for some people, it's a real problem. To, ghosts are an absolute problem. Just like if you talk to someone who's devoutly religious in, in a specific belief system, like, you know, they're, they're a certain sect of Christianity, you can't talk to them about anything else because it's absolute heresy. They don't want to hear it. You know, the devil's influencing you. If you even try to tell me that there are other people in the, in the world who, you know, aren't doomed to hell, because they've accepted a worldview and they don't want to hear any information that might be counter to that. And so that's okay. Sometimes you do just have to walk away. Yeah. Um, but I also just accept that, hey, come on, you know, in the end of the day, people are just operating uh, under the, you know, the luggage that they carry, the belief system that they have. That's just how they're rolling. And, uh, and, and that's okay, you know. Um, I, I'm not here to try to sell anybody on any ideas. I'm not running a religion, you know. I'm just trying to study a phenomenon that's been around for as long as there have been people. Yeah. What, do you have a bird in the background or something? I do. Is he going to make it on the air? That's uh, awesome. He may, yeah. That was weird. I was, I'm just, as long as it's that and not like a phone problem. No, he's, <laughs> he's real. He's absolutely real. The last thing you said kind of raises another point in that do you ever find yourself kind of frustrated, I guess you could say, in a sense where, you know, a lot of people in – and I tie this back to my experience with people in the UFO field where, you know, they've been – their attitude after a while gets to be the point where, you know, they're like, I've been doing this for so long and – Generations before me have been doing this, and we never got an answer, so I'm out. I'm done. You know, like, forget right. it. But, uh, and obviously with ghosts, this has been going on, you know, since the dawn of man, uh, uh, ghost stories and, and the ghost phenomenon. 
I guess sort of like how do you wrap your mind around dealing with the issue that, you know, you're you're studying something that's been around for so long, and chances are you're not going to find out what the answer is till you die. How do you find the motivation behind uh, studying something where chances are the the ultimate answer won't come until you know until the end for yourself? Yeah, I, well, I think part of it is that I, when I first got started in this, I, I thought it was a pretty simple topic. You know, there are ghosts and there are haunted places, and that's what you write about. And I've come to realize that uh, in doing this, that it touches on so many facets of the human experience, life, death, love, memory, you know, all these things, so many aspects of the paranormal, they all intersect. Ghosts, I've come to realize, are the least common denominator of spirituality. Muslims see ghosts, Jews see ghosts, Christians see ghosts, even atheists see ghosts. They have this experience that they cannot explain, but is but yet is a reminder that the world and universe is still a little bigger than they thought, and science doesn't have all the answers for them. And so from that perspective, I, I think there's there's no end to my interest in the subject because I've come to realize that it's, it's a part of us. Now, I've got a friend of mine who's a, a preacher. He's a prominent minister actually in San Diego who, um, who, who you know, he's a Baptist, and he's, he's got a huge congregation, and we've talked about this subject. And I said, you know, Sometimes people see ghosts, and it leads them into very spiritual lives, and that may lead them right to your door, you know, and they may even donate every week and put in the basket. So don't don't shun these ghosts just yet, you know. Don't think of them as heresy or devil worship just yet. Um, perhaps it's, it's, the, it's dipping a toe into the water of spirituality, you know, because it starts with ghosts. Well, if there's ghosts, then there's something going on out there, and if there's something going on out there, what does that mean for me? And that's a question every one of us has to come to grips with. You know, what's going to happen after we die? I don't know, you know, but, uh, but, but I've, I'm, I'm formulating my own ideas. Realistically, my research is my own spiritual quest. I accepted that long ago. Mm-hmm. I'm just sharing everything I find along the way in, in hopes that, well, first, because I think it's interesting, and second, you know, maybe it'll help someone else. Yeah. Ghostbusters, what do you want? You're listening to Banal of America Audio. You have been a participant in the biggest interdimensional cross-rip since the Tunguska Blast of 1909. Felt great. And uh, one thing, actually, the bird in the background kind of uh, reminded me of a part of the book here where you're talking about animal spirits mm-hmm. and the lady that you reference in the book, uh, who I think she wrote a book or something, and she's, she's into that scene, the animal spirit scene, right. um, has a her dog passed away and she has a parrot, and the parrot like says something when the dog's around. We need to get someone who that might be that should be the next big thing here for ghost hunting. I'm making a suggestion now. So all the ghost hunters out there, get yourself a parrot, teach it to talk, and then use that as a tool on a ghost hunt. That's my new suggestion. You know that that's that's probably not too far off from some of the things that people are out there using anyway. Yeah. At least that way you could be like, dude, do you see anything? And then the parrot might be like, Yeah, there's this or whatever, you know. It could be something <laughs> right. cool to use. Absolutely objective parrot. Uh, I do know a group that that brings their dogs, and they say, "Oh yeah, the dogs get jumpy when there's ghosts around." Exactly, so. but we need someone who can communicate that, so we need right. a parrot. That's right thing. I'm gonna, th- I'm throwing that out there, ghost hunters. I'm making a challenge to you. I want, yeah, I want to see a, a parrot idea. in use. Yeah, that, that'll help the mainstream. Yeah, no, that, that will definitely. We'll, we'll get acceptance now. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> um, and and the cool part about Ghost Files is that it's uh, a little bit collaborative. There's a lot of. Uh, 
there's a lot of stuff in there from from the folks on your website and stuff like that. I guess right. just talk a little bit about the collaborative nature of uh, the book, The Ghost Files, and, and sort of how you got some, some of the contributions from the people on your site. Well, I, I wanted to, you know, kind of tackle different subjects, you know, um, you know, because the point I wanted to make with the book is that it's not just ghosts and haunted places. You know, look at all the things that, that shoot off from here, you know. Um, you know We've got to take folklore into account, because why did we hear about some places being haunted and not others? And if there are ghosts, you know, and spirits, maybe there can be animals. And if, if, there are, if they're out there, can we communicate with them? Are we psychic? Um, you know, how do we do the investigation? All these kinds of things. And over the years, so many people have been contributing their own experiences, their own accounts. You know, I, I'm just one person with my own limited experience. But, you know, all these other people have had such rich, profound uh, encounters that I, I wanted to include them to kind of illustrate some of the points that I was making. So a lot of it just came down to this. This is stuff I read every day because it's my website. This yeah. is this is stuff that's coming in from all over the world, and it and it forces me almost daily to kind of rethink what I know or, or what I think about the subject. You know, because something new always comes in where I just say, "Wow, you know, I I really didn't consider that." Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, I, I don't know everything. It's just me. But when you you start to get a group of people all kind of weighing in on the topic. Uh, it gets interesting, and you start to think of things you didn't before. So that's what I wanted to bring to the book, because that's exactly what the website's about. It's about saying, hey, the skeptics may be right, and the religious guy may be right. We may all be doomed to hell, you know? Um, and, and the scientific guy that's saying, no, there are ghosts, and it's a fluctuation in the electromagnetic field, he may be right. Uh, somewhere in the middle is probably what's really correct, but, you know, we're not going to get there unless we explore all this stuff. Absolutely. And uh, just to sort of like wrap up the Ghost Files discussion, where can folks get – I have more stuff to talk to you about. I have a couple big picture uh, sure. big picture ghost stuff I want to deal with. But uh, where can folks get Ghost Files? I've seen it. It's got great distribution. Most of your books do. I see them at Barnes & Noble like all the time. But uh, where can folks find Ghost Files? Where can they pick it up? Uh, yeah, you can get it through Amazon, through your favorite online retailers. Barnes & Noble, as you said, they've always been really good to me. Borders um, or your favorite local bookstore. Nice. There you go. Ghost Files from New Page Books. Definitely check it out. Fun book. Great read. Um, and now I want to get into a couple of the big picture issues here in the world of ghost hunting. And we kind of touched on the first one, and that is the explosion of ghost hunting in popularity. Um, it's insane. Uh, as someone from the outside looking in, it's been fascinating to see this explosion in popularity. For starters, I guess, just talk a little bit about your perspective on this explosion of ghost hunting popularity, especially from someone who's been in the field for a long time. You were here before all these Johnny Come Latelys. Um, so, so what's your what's your perspective on on you know you're like you're like you know the guy who who's been in who's been following the Garage Band here that all of a sudden has a major record label and a number one hit, and you're like, wow, this is uh, this is bizarre. They've they've made quite a leap. So I don't know. Talk a little bit about how you've seen the explosion progress. Uh, from your point of view? Well, I'm not surprised, first of all. I, um, you know, there's a lot of things that feed that. And, you know, years, even years ago, back in the 90s, I, there were paranormal investigative groups. They just didn't have TV shows and stuff like that. So, and they were much fewer and further between. But I did notice, um, and, and this is something that I have noticed through all of them, which is why my group is so exclusive and, and, and good. <laughs> um, there's so much ego 
with these groups that often what I found is wherever you find one paranormal group, soon there will be two. Yeah. And two will beget four. <laughs> and four turns to eight because what happens is there's people in the groups, uh, they start getting into personality clashes, ego clashes. Well, I'm a better ghost hunter. I know how this stuff works. I'm starting my own group. Hey, you want to come with me? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then those two people fight and then they start their own groups. And, and then, uh, of course, some people start to get television shows and it turns into pop culture, um, propagating the idea to all kinds of other people who may not, or may not have ever thought of it before, and it's just exploding everywhere. First of all, I think it's a great thing. What the heck? I mean, you can sit around and drink beer all weekend, like I do, uh, or you can go out and go ghost hunting, like I also do. Um, you know, it, it, it's... It's a way to get out of the house. It's a way to do something that's really interesting and, and off the beaten path. It's a historical research. It's esoteric research. It's a spiritual quest. Uh, and it, and for, for lots of groups, it's, it's a very social thing. Um, you know, some of these groups that go out on weekends, I've realized it's, it's just a social group. That's that's what it is. They're not – and I, I actually appreciate the ones that accept that. They're like, hey, we're just a, a ghost adventuring group. You know, we're, out, we're not out to get book deals or TV shows or anything like that. This is just what we do on weekends. Nothing wrong with that. That's great. And then I recognize there are people that are really trying to do something different and make contributions to the field. That's great, too. And then there's the guys with TV shows. You know that. You know it's good to know someone's making money off this. <laughs> you know why not? <laughs> There's something for everybody, and uh, and if that keeps, if, if and all that contributes to the ultimate discussion, which is good. You know, I mean, the more we can discuss it on on, on podcasts and websites and television shows, uh, the more the, the less weird it becomes. And actually, maybe somewhere in our lifetime, possibly if it continues to get so popular, maybe maybe we'll get some like real funding to do some serious research instead of just people running around on weekends in cemeteries, you know? Yeah. Like you said, there's there's uh there's pros and cons to the whole thing. Obviously the pro being that, you know, like the old expression goes, uh, you know, a high tide lifts all boats, I guess you could say it help it's good for everybody in sure. a sense where the popularity grows. There's also sort of that downside that I've heard from a lot of people just things become a fad, and now you get a lot of amateurs in there, and they're kind yeah. of sullying the field. And sure. a lot of them don't. And we had Brad Steiger on the show, and he sort of expressed this point of view, and I'm in total agreement with him. And when I heard it, I was like, finally, someone crystallized the point of view I have. Is that, the, you know, they don't know the history of the field. And like, even from your book, you well pointed out that when you first got into it, then you started reading, like, every book you could. And you met these folks and stuff like that. You did the legwork. And I don't like to use the expression, paid your dues, but you did. And a lot of people sort of are jumping into this without doing that. Like, you know, they see ghost hunters, they go out and get an EMF reader, and now they're, you know, the podunk ghost patrol. <laughs> That's right. So uh, just to, I've again, been out with that group. They're very professional, I'll have you know. <laughs> yeah, the, the PGP. They're, right. Yes, I've heard quite a bit about them. But I would talk a little bit about, I guess, the downside of the popularity in the sense that, you know, there are some downsides to this. Yeah, there is. You're right. There are people that picked up an EF, EMF meter last weekend, and this weekend they're trying to get a TV show, and they're trying to get book deals and all this other stuff and be just another ghost hunter. Well, the world doesn't need just another ghost hunter. If you've got new ideas, bring them, you know, but you're not going to get new ideas until you've looked at all the old ones and, and until you realize that some of the stuff you're rehashing, you're just rehashing from Brad Steiger, really, or Hans Holzer or guys that did this, you know, 40 years ago. Um, you know, absolutely. Brad's a gem. Brad is really a, a treasure, you know, and um, he's he knows his stuff. Yeah, that that is one of the problems. Is that um, I have no problem with with paranormal adventuring groups, people that do this socially or just for fun or whatever. But you're right. Once they start to get media attention, and they will. Uh, 
because around October, every local paper is going to be looking to talk to somebody. Yeah. And it's probably why I end up doing so much media in October because I know if I don't do it, someone way less qualified will who hasn't, you know, been asked all the same questions a hundred times and finally has good answers for each of them, you know? Yeah. <laughs> someone who's going to just go, well, I don't know, you know, the EMF meter goes off and there's a ghost. No, <laughs> that's not necessarily true. We don't know that at all, you know? Yeah. Stop, stop it, stop it. Um, you're right. It, it makes us, the, the problem is that, you know, the few can make us all look foolish. And, and it's always been that way. It always will be that way. There will always be some schmucks out there. Even when it's small, there will be some really loud schmucks. Um, so all you can do is just, you know, that's why I don't belong to any group because then I'm never any, in any danger of someone in the group making me look stupid except me. Except me. <laughs> you know, I leave that to myself. Um, you know, I do my thing, and I, and I collaborate with as many people as possible when it makes sense, you know, because I really think that lots of people have contributions to make. And when you start to see someone that's really making everybody look foolish, all you can do is ignore them, you know, just – Hope that that the cream will rise to the top, and uh, and everything else will just kind of get buried. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like uh, the old expression, also. Uh, you know, you're only as good as your weakest link. And when the explosion of popularity happens, then you get a lot more weak links. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And and you know, I I know. I mean, it's like that in the UFO field too. There's, absolutely. There's people that are just make everybody look foolish, and there's others like Brad Steiger that make everybody look really well thought and and uh, and interesting. And, yeah. Um, and then there's everything in between too. Yeah. And the struggle is, uh, in all these fields, is that they're, because it's so off the beaten path of the mainstream, that there's really no way of, like, policing the field. You just, everyone sort of, it's, it's wild and woolly, and everyone who wants to be a ghost investigator can, everyone wants to be a ufologist, as long as they, they tag it on their name and... There's no way of being like, no, dude, you're not sanctioned by the American <laughs> Ufology Association or anything like that. Yeah, right. That's that's one of the problems with them. Um, I've always compared it to, um, you know, the way you become a ghost hunter is pretty similar to the way you become a freelance writer. You just wake up one morning and you say, I'm a freelance writer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's the same way you become a ghost hunter. There's, there is no certification. There's no nothing. You just wake up and you say you are one. And some people have been doing it for decades and some have been doing it for days. And, uh... Unfortunately, uh, the public may not know the difference, mm -hmm. which is too bad. But, hey, maybe if it, if it keeps getting more popular and more television shows, not that television is real, but, you know, at least it's promoting kind of how it works out there. I thought Lost was a documentary. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, honestly, I, the only television I watch is New England Patriots football and occasionally The Simpsons. But if it's anything else, I haven't seen it. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I just I, I don't have time. Um, I, I've I've watched some some shows and I just go oh, and turn it off and just get back to writing. There you go. Where do you see like the popularity of ghost hunting going? Because I'm seeing it peaking right now. With, oh like, yeah, a lot of shows and and uh, I feel like it's it's heading towards the peak and we're getting very close now to uh, I think by the end of the year or by this time next year. Uh, we're going to be on the downslope. There's going to be some oversaturation. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Uh, the public can only stay interested in one topic for so long. Uh, I mean, the mass public, you know. Uh, eventually, every network, I mean, every network practically, practically does have some kind of paranormal content now. Yeah. And the, the public will just overdose on it, and it'll go away. But something else that's been cyclical is, you'll, you know, 
sure you've seen it. You, uh, in, the, in the 80s, UFOs were kind of big. Totally. And, and ghosts, not so much. And then, like, in the late 90s, the ghost thing started getting big, and UFOs kind of went away. Mm-hmm. UFOs, I think, are heating up again. Yeah. You know, uh, they're starting to make the news more. They're starting to get TV shows again. And these things are cyclical. And then those will go away, and it'll be Bigfoot. And and then ghosts will come back again. And it, one of the things I've noticed, too, with the interest in ghosts, this, this goes back to, like, the mid-1800s. Every time there's great turmoil in the world, people get spiritual and start looking at spirit communication, psychics, and ghosts. Mm-hmm. It happened in the 1860s uh, with the U.S. Civil War. It, it launched a huge uh, boon for the spiritualist movement. So many people were dying in an untimely way, and so many families were left asking questions. They sought out spiritualists. I need to talk to my dead you know, brother who died, you know, fighting for the war. Um, it happened again in World War One. happened again in World War Two. happened again in Vietnam. Every time that the world's in turmoil, uh, there's a spike in interest in this stuff. And when's the last time it happened? 2001. Yep. September 11th, you know, we're at war with everybody now. And, and, and I think that was part of the, uh, not, not only were we due in the natural cycle of things, I think that was kind of the catalyst that made people start going, wait a minute, what does it all mean? You know, totally. what does it all mean? And, and those questions lead people to church and it leads them to asking other kinds of questions that maybe they can only find in a haunted building. Absolutely. To sort of stay on the theme here of this ghost hunting phenomenon right now, when the bubble bursts on ghost hunting, you know, where do you see the field being when that happens? So obviously, uh, as the popularity is so huge right now, a lot of people are going to bail when this isn't the hot thing to do anymore. The, sure. good, the good part about these cycles is that when you get a big wave like this, uh, some of them are going to stay. And, yeah, you know, that's right. That's what that's what you hope for. That's you know that's the the salvation of the field really is every time there's a big cycle, you pick up the new people that are going to be carrying the field into the future. But it also really does a number on I guess you could say like the economy of of the ghost hunting field. And and, and from my perspective, um, in the UFO field, we've seen it uh, post 9/11. 9/11 really put UFOs off the map until like this past year. Right. And it hurt the field. A lot of magazines went under. A lot of groups just lost tons of members. You know, uh, UFO conventions kind of went out the window. Um, we've seen it really do a number on the economy of the UFO field. Do you think that sort of thing is going to happen with ghost hunting? Do you, uh, when the popularity goes down, how do you think the field is going to, you know, readjust to that new world? Well, the good news is it, it never goes away, right? Yeah. Interest in UFOs never extinguished. It's just It just got down to the hardcore. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there's there's some beauty in that too. So on the one hand, I'm looking forward to it, you know, yeah. like because then it'll just be the hardcore, like it was before, you know, like it was when I started. Um, it'll it'll just and and, uh, and it'll come back again. Um, so so that's the good news. Uh, one of the things I've also noticed, and this you know, five years ago, you know, you you could only be interested in ghosts if you brought up anything else. You were a fruitcake. You know, if you said, well, we, we cover ghosts and Bigfoot, they'd be like, you're nuts. You know, or ghosts and UFOs. Today, I'm seeing a lot of paranormal groups uh, starting to diversify. We don't just cover ghosts. We cover UFOs and Bigfoot and everything else. And part of me wonders, like, do you sense the end coming and you're diversifying your portfolio now? <laughs> so, uh, you know, so that when, when it does turn to UFOs, you can say, well, we've been doing that for years. Yeah. Uh, maybe, and I think some of them are, and, and you know, you could argue the right or wrong of it. I mean, whatever, you know. Sometimes, uh, you know, the, there are multiple weird phenomena going on 
We know that in Massachusetts, right? We've got the Bridgewater Triangle. There's Absolutely, a, yeah. There's nothing in there that that's missing. <laughs> you know, you got Bigfoot and ghosts and UFOs and cryptids and you know Chris Balzano's in there too. He's definitely <laughs> you know paranormal. So um, you know, it, it's all in there. And and why not? Why not study it all? Yeah. The neat thing for me, because I do like uh, I do like infighting. <laughs> the neat thing for me about the ghost hunting field is much like Bigfoot flesh and blood versus paranormal feud and Bigfoot debate. Um, there's kind of that sort of uh, debate, I guess you could say, in ghost hunting, spiritualism versus science, you know, which way is the proper way to, to hunt for ghosts or study for ghosts. Um, I guess just talk a little bit about that overarching debate that goes on in the ghost hunting field. Yeah, well, I mean, spiritualism versus science, first of all, no one out there is using purely one or the other. No one. No one on TV, no group. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, when you when you break out your EMF meter and think you're being a scientist, you know you're not. <laughs> you're, you're you're channeling is what you're doing. You're yeah. trying to. You may not even realize it. Uh, and again, that's one of the things that's so interesting to me. I've seen groups. Some groups are out there saying, you know, we don't use psychics. We don't use any of that stuff. No dowsing rods. Others say, yeah, that's all we use. I even know, I know a group of witches that go out there and they use witchcraft for ghost hunting. You know, very esoteric means. I even know of three groups now, three of them, that are evangelical Christians using ghost hunting as a way to get people into the flock. You know, someone calls them and says, we have a ghost, and they come in with their Bibles and they try to get them to church and all this other stuff. And I'm like, I mean, I don't agree with that at all. But at the same time, it's just I'm 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 just reporting what's out there. Yeah. Um. So you know, God, it's it's all over the place. I don't know what the right answer is. The right answer is probably somewhere in the middle. And unfortunately, the middle doesn't exist. <laughs> you know, there there is no balance. The, the middle is probably like alchemy. You know, the the blending of science and belief. Um. You know that no two people could ever agree on. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I would never tell someone how to do this or not do this. I don't know. I, I don't know what gets results. For me, the most interesting evidence always is the personal accounts, the personal experience. If I go into the Lizzie Borden house and I hear voices and footsteps right above me and run upstairs and find no one there, you know, it forces me to say, well, you know, maybe that wasn't a ghost. I accept that. But damn, I don't know what it was at 11 o'clock at night, you know? Yeah. So, um, you know, it, 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 no two ghost hunters are alike. That's certainly one thing I found. Yeah. Also, sort of on the infighting feud, and you kind of touched on this, how one group begets two, begets four. It is pretty bad, that interdisciplinary squabbling in, in the ghost hunting field. It seems like, well, for starters, the, the one of the things I'm down on, I guess you could say, about ghost hunting is kind of like how, how we made the joke about the Podunk Ghost Patrol. It right. seems like, you know, if you want to be a ghost hunter, all you got to do is first first you need, uh, you know, a name, then a logo. And right. a website and T-shirts and stuff, and then an EMF reader, and you know, then next thing you know, you're going to places and stuff. There's like taps, and they have their own sort of like little network, if you will, of groups and stuff like that. Then there's just so many. There's an alphabet soup of of little minor league uh, ghost hunting groups, and some groups that consist of two people right. and aren't really a, a group. Although I count your one person group as a group. Thanks, so, I appreciate yeah, that. So I, it, well, I, I'll you endorse know. it. I appreciate um, it. But it's like, <laughs> I guess. Just uh, talk a little bit about that landscape of, of ghost hunting groups and how it seems like uh, some of them work together, some of them feud. It's it's bizarre, but also yeah, it fun is, to watch. It, it is. It, you're right. It's fun for me to watch. Where um, I think God, Lloyd Auerbach, who's a he's a parapsychologist in California, he was telling me recently that um, he's been talking to some 
groups in the Seattle-Tacoma-Washington area, mm -hmm. and this is just a case study for you. They counted 42 paranormal investigative teams in and around Seattle-Tacoma. Wow. 42! Holy moly! Yeah. <laughs> and so what happens is some of them get into, like, turf wars, you know, like, well, you can't go investigate that restaurant. That's our place. I don't know. If it were me and you're really interested in research, you'd say, hey, I just investigated that re that restaurant. Can you go in now and see what you find? Yeah. And then when you're done, let's send in another group, and then let's all talk, you know, separately and, and together. Uh, you're right. One of the problems is that the ghost hunting groups, I, I would argue, I, you know, tell me if you agree or disagree, because I don't know the UFO people as much, but would you would you guess there's a lot more people out there doing amateur ghost research than UFO? Right now, absolutely. Yeah, and, and I, I, that's my thought, too. But we're not nearly as organized as the UFO people. We don't have MUFON. You know, we don't have a ghost equivalent. Yeah. Uh, where, where people, you know, have some form of, you know, centralized repository that most people can pretty much agree on. Yeah, I think the TAPS family thing is sort of the – I feel like they're kind of trying to form their own sort of MUFON of ghosts. Right. But I don't but, know but, if that's going to be successful or not. But the problem with that is that you still have one kingpin group, mm -hmm. and the kingpin group is the group with the TV show. Yeah. You know, um, whereas MUFON doesn't strike – you know, I, I think for it to really work, you would really – it would have to be led by someone like the Ryan Institute or the Parapsychology Foundation, something that's just like this neutral, academic, centralized group that no one can argue about. You know, ghost hunters all over the world can argue with each other about turf and all that other stuff, but you kind of can't argue with the with what the Rhine Institute has done. You know, mm -hmm. down, that used to be attached to Duke University and all their their studies into this. If they were to to centralize it, um, you know, you're either on board with academia or you're not. And and I think that's that for for there truly to be a good network, that's where it would have to start. Uh, the TAPS guys, they, I'm, I think that network started more out of necessity. You know, they're, they're so popular. They've got the television shows. They're getting hundreds and hundreds of emails a week asking for people to come look at their haunted house. That they just, you know, the only way to do it was to set up a network. And the other the other sort of big picture area I want to talk about with you is something that you definitely have a ton of perspective on, and that's sort of the online world of paranormal studies. Um, and as, as we've talked about already, ghostvillage.com is insanely popular. Mm -hmm. and, and like you pointed out, it started out as just six pages, which is kind of uh, – this a little bit how Banal of America started, and now we've gotten just, just – the ball starts rolling. Talk a little bit, I guess, for starters, about the evolution of ghostvillage.com from just six pages to what it is now. Yeah, well, it, 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 like I said, back in 99, I said, hey, tell us about your own ghost experiences. And, you know, back then we'd get like eight, ten hits a day, <laughs> you know. And uh, maybe every four or five weeks someone would send in an experience, and I would publish it. Mm -hmm. And then the more that I published, the more they started coming in. And I started to realize that people were reading these stories and realizing, first of all, that they're not alone. There are lots of other people out there having similar experiences and that uh, there's something cathartic about sharing them, about getting it off your chest, saying, oh, you know, finally, here's, here's, a, here's a place where I can share this, where I won't be called crazy or laughed at. And, uh, and it's also, of course, somewhat anonymous. You know, I mean, it's, it's the Internet. They don't have to give their full name or picture or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think that was a big part of it. And then, uh, you know, we started reviewing books. We started interviewing people. And then finally other, other writers started contributing stories regularly. We put up the message board, which has just shy of 20,000 members now. And, oh, wow. Yeah, so it's just it, it went from, you know, six hits a day to, you know, in the neighborhood of 200,000 hits a day. And we've got, I think, God, I think Google has something like 
57,000 pages indexed on, oh, wow. on the site. So, um, it, and I will take all the credit for starting it, but boy, there's just hundreds and hundreds of people that contribute now that, that keep it going because I couldn't do this alone under any any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. How difficult is it to keep up with the, the sort of like the, the fast pace of change online? Like I've seen, uh, I checked out ghostvillage.com. It's massive. I mean, it's vast. And, mm -hmm. and just to explore it takes would take a while. Um, but I definitely recommend that everybody does because it's just an outstanding ghost site. But how do you keep up with that fast pace of change? I see ghostvillage.com has uh, sort of their own podcast series, Ghost Chronicles. you got a mm -hmm. YouTube channel, uh, Paranormal Journeys. Yep. show on YouTube. How do you keep up with that fast pace of change online? Yeah, that's hard because, I, I, I mean, I will see new websites come up. Here's the other thing, too. Like, you know, we are huge. And if I want to change, fortunately, after, you know, being in web development for over 10 years now, not just my site, but professionally, too, um, I, I, I've, I've learned a few things over the years. So I can incorporate new stuff better. I mean, in the old days, you wanted to add a new page, you had to update 200 files, <laughs> you know? Oh, wow, yeah. It's, uh, you know, one of it is just smarter design. That's that certainly helped a bit. Um, but, yeah, the, you know, new technology isn't necessarily great. You know what I mean? You, you want to see what's going to work. YouTube has got a massive audience. Um, you know, that just makes sense. People are more visual than ever before. They want to see video content. Some people are not going to be bothered to read online, but they will watch. They will listen. Podcasting, of course, is, is popular. So, um, you know, part of it is just keeping up with the competition. The other part of it is just saying, what kind of site do I want to look at? Because I, I guarantee you I look at the site more than anyone else, <laughs> you know, uh, the, being the, the guy that takes care of it every day. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, well, what, what would interest me to read or hear or see? Yeah. And, and those are some of the things I'm starting to seek out now. And um, my new thing is, like, look, I've, I've, I've brought this massive audience together. Um, I can only do so much. So, like, for example, the podcast, I have nothing to do with it. I'm just the publisher of it. But I like what Ron does. Yeah. Yeah, that's the cool thing about Ghost Village uh, from from what I've already seen on, on the site and stuff is that you really built a great community there and fostered a great community, which is cool, especially in light of, you know, how antagonistic some other realms of the paranormal world are that, that you've built a nice community there. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think, I mean, I don't have all the answers. No one does. And I think if you can just expose people to lots of different perspectives. Um, I publish stuff up there all the time that I don't agree with. You know, there's someone that, that that's written articles on, you know, why orbs really are ghosts. I don't agree with a word of it, but I think I think that it's important people see it, you know, and, and draw their own conclusions. Um you know, if if I was sure I had the answers, I'd be on the top of the mountain somewhere preaching and starting my own church and really getting rich. <laughs> but uh, but I don't. And so what I can do is just make sure that, um, you know, we stick to the same. The objective of Ghost Village has never changed. It was never supposed to be just about me. It was always, you know, let's look at all sides of the issue. And uh, and I think that's what, that's what keeps people coming back to us and, uh, you know, again and again. Yeah, well, in, in a sort of business perspective kind of way, you have done an awesome job too, and uh, something that I really respect and, and definitely, um, you know, will learn from just from the way you've done things is to build the brand of GhostVillage.com. Right. Um, I guess just talk a little bit about that sort of building the brand and the stresses that go along with that, because I've experienced that with Banal of America, you know, where it's just it, this stress is involved with, with building a brand that that other people really wouldn't understand. Yeah, well, this is where, you know, again, to give away a trade secret, I used to work for an ad agency, and I was a marketing director of, uh, of a, 
a company before I became a full-time writer. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I understood from the beginning, you know, I, I wanted a very consistent message. You know, ghostvillage.com's tagline from the start was ghost research, evidence, and discussion. Always. It's never changed. It's never changed, you know, chased anything else. Uh, the logo has been very consistent and will remain so. This is it. This is our logo. Um, you know, it might adjust so slightly that you won't even notice it, but that's, you know, the consistency in color scheme and everything else. Um, fortunately, it's become such a brand, my publisher wanted to put the logo on the cover. That wasn't my request. That was theirs. Yeah, that was cool. And it, it's great because people in the bookstore might pick it up and not buy the book, but they might go back and check out the website. Um, you know, fortunately, I do. I mean, I do a ton of media. I do television and I do radio and podcasts. And what's nice about the website is it's free. You know, if you if you want to just dip your toe in, if you're not ready to buy my book just yet, if you're not ready to, you know, um, whatever, you know, jump in. Just yet, ghostvillage.com is free. You can go there when it's convenient for you, 24-7, and you can check it out. You can learn from it. You can contribute. Uh, and I think that's that's the beauty of it is it's just consistency is critical if you're going to build something that's going to last. You know, you, you can't go chasing different dreams or ideas. You can't change the way you do things. And number one, you, you can't be an egomaniac and say, well, I'm the ghost guru. This is how it works. No other opinions welcome. Uh, because I, I've seen those those websites, they they get popular and then they go away pretty quickly as soon as too many people have a beef with the the kingpin in, involved. Yeah. And uh, I've got such a great team of moderators that run my message board. I absolutely couldn't do it without them. I've got great contributors that are always bringing in new material, and it's just grown. It's it's grown on its own inertia now, um, which is awesome. I mean, from from a perspective, it's so much easier to run now than it used to be because. So I've got so much to work with. I've got stories coming in every day. It's just which one do I choose now? Yeah, yeah, that's the good part about it. And you got to have a, a great staff. Like we have an awesome staff at Banal of America, and I'm sure you have a great group of people helping you run Ghost Village. So yeah, no, yeah, absolutely, can't do it alone. Nope. Sort of. Let's talk about the the world of the paranormal online because you. Uh, you know, you were in the field of the paranormal before the online explosion, I presume, mm-hmm. um, and you've seen it explode online, not just not just you know the podcast and 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 the YouTube stuff, but just in general. Uh, you know, before the internet, the world of paranormal study was a completely different world in a lot of ways. Um, I guess just talk about the evolution of online research and the paranormal world, online publication uh, for paranormal stuff, and the pros and the cons of the of the online explosion. Well, the good news is the internet is, I mean, it's an amazing, amazing resource. Uh, You can find things, you can research things so much faster online than you ever could before. And and it's really sped up that whole process, which is great. The problem is, is the internet is so accessible that it's turned uh, any any wannabe into a publisher. Yeah. Now, I, I mean, I worked for newspapers and magazines before I ever got started online. I understand things like copyright law. I have <laughs> proofreaders, you know, like, you know, th- things that, you know, good content is, is still important. But uh, one of the problems that I've run into a lot is just, you know, flagrant disregard for copyright where people will say, oh, that's a cool article and just copy it and paste it onto their websites. Yeah. Um, and you know you can you could spend all day chasing those people down saying you know you can't do that it's legal you know you didn't ask you just took it and that's absolutely against the law uh so that's one of the things you you run into is people absolutely lifting your content and and taking it elsewhere um you know it, it's it's an uphill battle and sadly it's it's a losing battle all you can try to do is just educate people a bit that you know the 
wonderful thing is, yes, you can be a web publisher. You know, you can get a website going for, what, like 20 bucks a year now? You can have some space and a name and everything, you know, if, if you want to do it on the cheap. But you still have a responsibility. If you're going to be good, if you're going to get bigger and, and have people want to come back, you have to offer something that no one else offers, and that's original content presented in a good way. Um, so again, there, there, there's a reason that there are a few websites that people go to most of the time and others that people just jump in and out of. Mm -hmm. And the reason is those people understand it. They understand that they need to have content that other people don't have, perspectives, you know, things that, that make people want to come back to those websites. And and that's true in any field. It doesn't matter if it's ghosts or widgets or cars or guitars or anything else. Yeah. Uh, so that's so, so. You know, the good news is there's a reason that some websites become the, the best known and most popular, and there's a reason that uh, you know <laughs> lots of lawsuits go around. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, another downside, I guess you could say, to the online esoteric world is just the proliferation of hoaxes and that yeah. kind of thing. It does slow. It sort of adds a lot of uh, gum to the works, if you will. Um, just in general, it's sort of that's one of the bad parts about it. Absolutely. And you know, I mean, shoot, I. I I know how to use Photoshop as well as just about anybody. You know, I, I could uh, I could whip you up something, you know, very convincing. Um, but, you know, I've never put forward a ghost photo that I said, this is it, this is proof. Even when people send me things, it's always their word. It's I don't endorse anything ever, ever, ever. You know, someone sends me a photo, I'm like, hey, that's interesting. I'll put it on the site. It's part of the discussion. It's not me saying, this is a ghost photo. It's me saying... You know, here's what someone claims to be a ghost photo. And then I always ask them questions. Well, you know, you've got to tell me what happened surrounding this photo. What, where, where, where did you take it? What happened? What was the temperature? You know, what, tell us all about it. And then, you know, you can decide for yourself if this is truly evidence worth discussing or just another person out there who might be fooling themselves. Yeah. And uh, one of the complaints I've heard, I guess, uh, more so in the UFO field and, and – uh, and it's actually sort of the antithesis in the ghost field. It's just that the online world sort of hurt the personal nature of esoteric studies in the sense that, like I pointed out, uh, you know, a lot of UFO conferences don't do too well anymore, and a lot of UFO groups are kind of winding down and not, not as popular as they were before. But we've kind of seen the opposite take from the ghost hunting field in that it's, it's actually kind of helped in a lot of ways, both, uh, you know, helped and hindered, I guess you could say, the, the personal nature of that in the sense that it allows people to to meet and, and sort of uh, find collective interest in their own areas and stuff. You know, one of the things that kills me is, is the emails that we get at Ghost Village, and we get a lot of them. Like, you know, I, I, I need help. You know, can you, can you come to my house? I live in Alaska. You know, <laughs> and, and you sit there and you go, oh, man, you know, these people are reaching out to you. But they don't, what they don't realize is that there's lots of people reaching out to you. And I kind of made the decision years ago is that, you know, you can either help a few people a lot or you can help a lot of people a little. Yeah. And that's the route I took. I'm, I want to help a lot of people a little. It's all I can do. You know, I, I put forth everything I have. It's either in my books or on my websites. I don't hold anything back. There's no secrets, you know. Um, in interviews or whatever, you can ask me anything. I won't ever answer with read the book, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Which is so obnoxious. <laughs> but, uh, you, you know, so so it's all out there. But what I can't do is come to your house in Alaska or Texas or and sometimes not even in the next town over. I, I just. I can't because I 
wouldn't have the time to, to do it any justice. Mm -hmm. And so what I can do is refer you to our message boards where there's lots of people that might be able to give you a hand, or if I know someone in your area, you know, re refer a case to you. So you're right, it's, sometimes it, it feels impersonal even for me. Even people who are like, oh, I read your book, I have this question, or, you know, I need some help, can, can you come here and check this out? And you go, God, I can't, you know, I wish I could, but yeah. I, it's just me, you know, it's, it's, it's just one person sometimes. And you've kind of been around the online world uh, since 99 in the paranormal online world. Apparently, mm -hmm. I believe you probably have been doing a lot of online stuff before that. Where do you see the online world going, especially with regards to paranormal research? I mean, when you started Ghost Village in 99, people were just sort of hearing about MP3s. Right. The, the idea of being able to put together a radio show like we're doing now was, was something that was, you know, maybe being talked about but wasn't being done. And, you know, YouTube just came out of nowhere, like, uh, in the during the aughts here, sometime after 2001 or so, and that just exploded. Where, where do you see the online world going, especially with regards to paranormal stuff? Yeah, I think what you're going to see is um, you're going to see a lot more interactive video and audio um, coming up because that's getting easier to do and more accessible, like you mm -hmm. said, like with YouTube and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, the Paranormal Journey Show is a show I started filming for my local cable access. You know, that's that's where it gets seen by almost seven people. <laughs> but then I put it on YouTube and on Ghost Village, and it gets seen by thousands. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it, it's pretty cool. We use good TV studios to put stuff together, and then I just got to get better at uh, getting the, the digital digital files uh, up to YouTube. Um, so, you know, I think what you're going to see is more of that stuff. You're going to see streaming investigations like, hey, you know, this weekend we're here in Alaska and we're going to be going on an investigation and we're going to set up webcams and you can type us questions and, and you can partake in these things. Uh, because one of the things that's happened is, first of all, I mean, I don't know how other people feel, but TV really is horrible. You know, there's so much junk on. Yeah. Um, and with the writer's strike, that's only making it worse. You know, the, the networks, I read an article uh, last spring that said in a one-year period, the four major television networks lost one million viewers. Oh, wow. And and they were, they're all scratching their heads going, well, what happened? Did they go to, like, you know, the the specialized cable channels or did they start reading again or whatever? The reality is everything is eating away at network television. Some people are spending a lot more time on the Internet where they where 10 years ago they would have just been plopped down in front of the television. Yeah. You know, they're becoming their own program directors on the Internet. And so if you're going to stay innovative, you're going to have to offer content that they want to see. And I think that's, you know, that's something that I would love to, to start hosting on Ghost Village one day. I'd love to see you know, groups that can take very limited equipment that's easily accessible and stream it as as they're doing an investigation somewhere for the whole world to see. Yeah. I think that's that's probably what's next. Mm -hmm. And then I guess the uh, the other big picture, sort of final big picture question would be really, uh, you know, the EVP thing kind of came along in the last, you know, uh, let's, let's say, you know, in the last seven years or so. I mean, that's mm -hmm. a rough estimate. And you'd kind of think that that would be a good tide turner for the, the skeptics, not the zealous skeptics, but, you know, the, right. the open-minded skeptics. Um, but it kind of, that's kind of also, the bloom is kind of off the EVP rose now because everyone's doing it. Um, what, what do you think, will anything be good enough, I guess, for the skeptics, uh, short of them dying so they can see for themselves what, what happens? Um, will, will anything be good enough? Do you think that, where do you see ghost hunting going as far as evidence collection, that sort of thing? Because, you know, EVP, all of a sudden it was like, wow, this EVP thing is great, and now everybody's doing it. Uh, where do you see the next thing going as far as tangible evidence goes. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. EVP, well, of course, it started in the 1950s, yeah. but uh, but you're right, it did get a lot more popular just in the last, you know, 
half decade or so. It, it, it just exploded. And, uh, yeah, you're, you're right. You know, for some people, no evidence is going to be enough. Um, and, and that's one of the things you run into where you're like, you start to say, like, well, wait a minute. At what point are you just operating under a belief system and, 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 and cease being a true skeptic? Yeah. You know, or you just say, like, I don't believe in this, therefore anything you show me can't be real. Um, you know, one of the examples I like to use is the, what about those those pieces of paper in your pocket? Why on earth is the 20 worth more than the one? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, they're the same size, the same color, roughly the same design, same weight. You know, Washington was the first president. Andrew Jackson was, was actually impeached. You know, why is he worth more than, than uh, Washington? And the reason is because it's, it's a, it's a, Faith. It's it's a belief system. We collectively agree that twenty is worth a pizza and a six pack, and the one won't even get you a cup of coffee. You know, and and that's uh, and that's one of the things we collectively agree on. Uh, the problem is that when it comes to belief, we can't collectively agree on anything. And so no matter what you put forward, I don't think it'll ever convince some skeptics because they're simply operating under a belief system. As far as like the next evidence goes, you know, you're seeing uh, a lot more investigators with better and better video equipment, mm -hmm. uh, infrared. Um, some of them are really ponying up the thousands of dollars it takes to get a, a thermal imaging camera and stuff like that. And um, I think, you know, you'll see more of that stuff as it gets less expensive and more accessible. And you seem to be pretty up-to-date, I guess you could say, or, or you know, you're following the uh, the new science area in general, you know, um, you know, all the sort of alternative dimension, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Do you think we're headed in, in a direction where there's a chance maybe that that area of science will not necessarily solve the ghost problem or the ghost enigma uh, on its own, but maybe will unlock some element to the ghost thing probably by accident? Yeah, I think I think what's happening is you'd have to put a quantum physicist, a psychologist, a scientist, a ghost hunter, a priest, a rabbi, you know, and um, I guess you know some and you and me yeah. all in the same room and say, listen, let's all talk about what we know, and realize that there's a lot more overlap here than than we ever considered before. Yeah. Um, you know, there's 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 so many things. The problem is that mainstream science, whenever it gets into the paranormal, they throw their hands up saying, "Whoa, I'll lose my grant," you know, if I if I start talking about this stuff. And so they they're forced to ignore it um, instead of just following the the road wherever it may lead. Uh, same with psychologists. My sister's a psychologist. She's a doctor, PhD, and I've asked her. I said, "Forget for a minute if ghosts are real or not real. They're perceived as real by millions of people the world over. As someone who studies the human animal." Wouldn't you want to know more about that? And she looked at me and she's like, man, if we start talking about ghosts, it'll set us back 100 years. We'll be head shrinkers again and, you know, the same stigmas we dealt with back when, you know, Freud was around. Yeah. Whereas now we actually made some headways becoming like a legitimate science. And I said, hey, you're absolutely right. It was a very practical answer. And um, she's like, yeah, and you're right. You know, people perceive these things as real and we, we should be asking questions about that um, you know, what is your ghost? You know, maybe even if you have to put it in quotes. Mm -hmm. And um, but so, so those are the, some of the issues we're dealing with is that it, it is still weird and psychology doesn't want to touch it. Science can't touch it. And so it's left to uh, left to the masses like us. Yeah. So so what's coming up on the horizon for you? Let me run down your dates that are coming up here. You got some speaking engagements. Uh, Volcano, California. You're going to be there for Ghost Rush 2008, March 28th to the 30th. Uh, Cape Cod Community College, you're going to be speaking there in West Barnstable, Mass. on May 30th. You'll be at the Mass Monster Mash. I'll be there, too, so I'll see you there Great. Uh, in October in Watertown, Mass. 
Uh, what other stuff do you have coming up on the horizon? New books, any speaking engagements that I didn't hit on, any media appearances you want to mention, anything like that? Let's hear it. Yeah, no, I've, I've got. A, I'm, I'm booking up throughout the year for uh, for more lectures and things like that, which is always fun to do. Um, you can always go to ghostvillage.com to check out what what the latest is. And uh, I've got two books coming out this year. Weird Massachusetts, which you mentioned earlier, and I do apologize about the uh, the photo shoot, but I thought really you'd be perfect for it. <laughs> and um, the, uh, the the second book is my first book for children. Actually, it's called wow. Who's Haunting the White House, and it's a, a nonfiction book for children reusing ghosts as kind of an innovative way to teach history. So I'm excited about that. That'll be out in September. Awesome, awesome. That sounds cool. Um, and with the explosion here in, in Paranormal TV, we haven't seen you. Uh, we obviously you've done TV appearances and everything, but uh, no, no spinoff Ghost Village TV show on the horizon <laughs> or anything like that yet. You know, I, it's funny. I, I, I've, I've, in the last like five months, I've spoken with almost like a different production company per month. Wow. And um, they're certainly hot on the, but uh, you know that, that that doesn't mean anything. Don't be impressed. <laughs> really, <laughs> I mean it, it's it, it means nothing more than I took time out of my day on the phone. Um, but uh, certainly they're still interested in producing new shows, and they're looking to talk to different people who do this stuff. And um, I, I don't know if I'm right for television or not. I guess um, you know who knows? Who knows? You know, you, you never know. But. At the end of the day, I just want to keep doing what I love, and that's writing and researching and, and talking about this subject. And if that leads to TV, that's fine. And if it doesn't, that's probably even better. Nice, nice. Well, Jeff, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, it's been great talking to you. You have a great insight into the ghost field. Like I said, you're a superstar in the field, so your your point of view uh, has a lot more weight than, than you know the head of the Podunk Ghost Patrol. So, <laughs> so I was glad I could have you here on the show as I delve into the ghost world here on Banal America Audio. Yeah, really open-minded point of view. I like the way you look at all the different things, and you're willing to say, you know, well, this guy might be wrong. We we may not know. You know, I like that. I don't like people who come on and, and you know say they know for sure, which is always a disappointment to have someone on who <laughs> who has all the answers, because then uh, there's not much left to talk about. <laughs> and uh, it was really great to have you on the show. I had a chance to meet you at the Mass Monster Mash. Very cool guy, easy going, not not an egomaniac like some of the other people in the paranormal field. So that <laughs> that's always a plus. Yeah, like I said, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. The book is The Ghost Files. It's from New Page Books. You can find that all over the place. And the other books, of course, are Ghosts of War, Our Haunted Lives, The Nightmare Encyclopedia, Encyclopedia of Haunted Places, Communicating with the Dead, The World's Most Haunted Places, Weird Massachusetts coming up, and, of course, coming up is the Who's Haunting the White House book, so I look forward to those books. You're a pillar of the ghost community. You've been here before the ghost fad started. You're not a Johnny-come-lately. You're a serious researcher, and you put your time into the field, so we need more people like you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate it. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 3. Big, big, super huge thanks to Jeff Belanger for coming on the show and giving us so much time and insight into the ghost genre. You can find out more on Jeff at his immensely popular website, www.ghostvillage.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. This week's letter comes from Southern Ontario, Canada. And the author is a man by the name of Randy. Here's what Randy has to say. Hi, Tim. This message originates from Southern Ontario, Canada. We, my girlfriend and I, really enjoy your show, the many interesting interviews, and especially the fact that they are so easy to access online as MP3s. I have a 90-minute commute twice a week, and I play them as an alternative to broadcast radio. 
A two-hour interview generally leaves me hanging, however, wishing perhaps the drive was longer. If you asked me for a favorite show, I'd be hard-pressed to do so, but the one with Grant Cameron stands out as totally interesting, as well as stimulating and revealing. I look forward to future shows with great anticipation, Tim, and I want to once more thank you and your hard-working staff for the contribution you are making to a better understanding of the complex subject of esoterica in general, and, in particular, common elements as they relate to ufology and paranormal research. I like your style and the way you get some of the guests to, quote, lighten up a bit without drawing away from the serious content of the topics. Signed, Randy, in Southern Ontario, Canada. Thank you very much for the feedback, Randy. I appreciate it. I hope you are digging the MP3s and they're working out well for you. I really appreciate that you mentioned the way we try to get the guests to, quote, lighten up a bit. That's definitely something that we enjoy doing here on the show. One of the positives, I think, of having a pre-taped program as opposed to some sort of live situation is that the guests really seem to cut loose a little more than maybe you'd expect them to on a live radio broadcast. It becomes more personal. It's really more of a conversation between me and the guest and less of a show. Also, I'm glad you enjoyed the Grant Cameron interview. Stick around. I'm sure Grant's going to be coming back on the show in the not-too-distant future. I actually had a chance to talk to him briefly when we taped the Steve Bassett interview because Steve was doing the interview from Grant's room at the International UFO Congress. And when I called out there, Steve hadn't shown up yet into the room, but Grant was. So we chit-chatted for a little bit, and we're talking about doing a future interview on BOA Audio sometime before the close of Season 3. So, once again, big thanks to Randy in Southern Ontario, Canada, for writing in. I love the international listeners, you know that, and I count Canada as international listeners. So all you great Canadian listeners, send me an email, and you'll get in here on BOA Audio listener feedback. What if you are from Canada? What if you're from somewhere else in the world? What if you're even from America and you want to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback? How do you do it? There's two ways. Either A, simply write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banallofamerica.com, click the contact button, and fire off an email to me. No matter how you get the correspondence in my hands, it will be put into the inbox for future BOA Audio listener feedback segments. Up next, what do you think it is, my friends? Of course, it's the thanks portion of the show. I want to give huge thanks and a big shout-out to the outstanding BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, and Rochelle Hawks. Week in, week out, top-notch reading material at PinalOfAmerica.com via the great BOA staff of writers. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at minallofamerica.com, you're only getting half the story. Read their stuff at BOA, check out their respective websites, and get to know the BOA staff. It's only a matter of time before BOA Audio, after hours, makes its grand debut, and you're going to be hearing from this crew, and I'm really excited to bring their voices to the BOA Audio listening audience. As you've heard, we've got crazy stuff going on. We've got the spin-off show, After Hours, in the works. You heard an hour-and-a-half-long interview last week, direct from Ireland. A two-hour interview a few weeks ago from South Africa. Next week, we're going all the way to France. You're going to be hearing about that in the preview in a little bit. The point I'm trying to make is that's three long international calls over the course of about a month. 
And trust me, my friends, I just got the phone bill here in the mail this weekend, and that shit adds up. And as usual, the money for that sort of thing comes out of my pocket. So now, here during the program, we turn to you and ask you to make a donation to help support BOA and to help keep the costs down so we can maintain the price of the program, which is free, for all of our great listeners and readers the world over. How do you make a donation? That's simple. You go to banalofamerica.com and click the PayPal button. No donation is too small, and all of those donations go towards fueling the BOA Starship. What else is there to say? What else is there to do? Only the preview for next week's program. We already sort of teased it, but I'm going to flesh it out now for you. We're going to be calling all the way to Paris, France, to welcome our guest, Gildas Bordais, one of the leading names in French ufology. We'll be talking about its history and evolution, official government-sponsored French UFO studies through the years, the Cometa Report, media coverage of UFOs in France, the attitude of the everyday French public with regards to UFOs, the recent release of French UFO files from March of 07, the state of French ufology today, and, of course, tons and tons more. Trust me, this one's going to be a fun episode. It's fascinating. You're going to learn a lot more about the global UFO phenomenon, a lot of strange differences about ufology in France that I didn't know about till I talked to Gildas. It was an eye-opening conversation for me, and hopefully it'll be an enlightening interview for you. That's Gildas Bordais talking about French ufology next week on BOA Audio Season 3. And on that note, we close it out for another week. Thank you so much for listening, my friends. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, wishing you a stress-free week, and signing off.